last book in the Bible, if you don't have one, the guys would like to get one in your hand. Just put your hand up real quick, no shame in it. You can keep in it, just don't hoard Bibles at home, okay? You can keep this one, you can write in this one. It's yours to keep if you need it. Jude. Second to last book, it's a short epistle. Might be only one page long in your Bible. Jude. And if you haven't been coming, we've been in Jude, Just this is going to be our third week. And so I want to kind of encapsulate the entirety of this letter written by Jude, who is Jesus' half-brother. Half-brother, but he didn't believe Jesus was God until after the resurrection. So he's got a pretty intense testimony. He didn't believe the guy he was bunking with was God, his half-brother, until he saw him murdered, put in a ground, and resurrected and ascended to heaven. And we've taken a look at it in three parts. So two weeks ago, we took a look at the beginning where Jude exhorted us. He said, you know what? I'm exhorting you to, to contend earnestly for this faith. Contend earnestly for this faith. Okay, that's the subtitle of the study, Contending for the Faith. Contend earnestly for this faith. And so in that first week, we saw kind of three ways in which you're constantly operating with culture and contention. And so you can reject things in culture in contending for the faith. You can receive things in culture in contending with the faith and you can redeem it. Some things just need to be rejected. Things that are intrinsically in evil, they just need to be rejected. There's no two ways about it. Some things need to be received like technology and, and, and instruments and, and medical advancements. Those can be received by the church and used for the good of the gospel. And some things need to be redeemed in contention for the gospel. That's where the world wants to use things for evil and Christians swoop in as God swooped into human history and say what the world intends for evil, we're gonna turn on its head and use for good. And so you're constantly rejecting things in contention for the faith. You're receiving things to be used for the faith. You're redeeming things in the name of the faith. And then last week we were warned, right? A big chunk of this letter is warning. Warning to Christians to beware of people that come in And they falsify the faith. And there's warning in there for those that are doing that. And it was an intense study and it's supposed to be. My job as a a preacher is just to tap into the Holy Spirit who authored it. Say, hey, give me the fervency that you had while you were writing it. They were to be contending for this faith. And so we saw things that we need to be aware of as Christians that are an assault on the faith. We saw things that people that come into the church that want to use and abuse the church. You need to beware of the creator God who's the source of this faith. But what haven't we defined yet? This faith, right? Anyone think I was like, ah, I'm ready to fight for it. What are we fighting for? (laughs) The faith, cool. What does that mean? The faith. There's a lot of great bumper stickers, but there's not a, there's not a, a lot of understanding. See, one of the great lies is that virtually all faiths are the same, And the great tragedy is that Christians can't defend that claim. They can't defend against it. You're basically, you're teaching the same thing as Gandhi and Buddha and Krishna. It's just, look, it's it's all the general rule. It's all about loving people and loving God. I mean, even the barista at Coffee Bean has that button. Love people, love God, right? And it's just everyone's cool with it. It's generally the same. And then you take a step back and you say, wait a minute, can I defend against that claim? Can I contend against that claim? Say, well, you're a Christian, it's just a general term. 
We brought in atheists at the college ministry some time back. We brought in a panel of atheists from the university, Secular Student Alliance Club. We brought in a, couple of athe- a bunch of atheists. There was like five or seven of them. And, and we spent one night, one entire night, just opening up the mic to them. We had 10 questions and they just responded. I didn't, I didn't contend with them. We gave them an open field to express their belief or lack of belief in various subjects, 10 questions. But then we invited them back next week and I responded to them all. But we gave them that venue. One of the questions is, what, what comes to mind right away when you think of Christian? And it was interesting. It wasn't, eventually they sort of got to some of the stuff, well, you guys are a little tough on, on homosexuality. And, 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 but do you know what the overarching answer from all of them was? The title's too vague. I don't know what you mean by that. And in one sense, they're actually right. In one sense, we've made it, in our understanding or lack of understanding of it, we've made it very vague. Thanks to the cults, they're not helping. We're Christians. No, you're not. Why not? Pastor said so, right? And so we talk about this faith. We talk about contending for this faith and being aware of people that are against this faith. But have we defined faith? And again, the great lie is that all faiths are virtually the same. The great tragedy is that we can't defend against that claim. And so as we look at the end, this last part of Jude, in verse 20, it says, but you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith. Your most holy faith. It says, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. Let me set up two things. First of all, doctrine. Today is going to be a doctrinal study. It just means of or relating to doctrine. Some people get, oh, this is going to be heavy. Doctrine, in its root, comes from a French word that just means doctor. I'm not that bright. I can figure that one out. Doctor, doctrine. Got it, right? Sounds the same, right? Get all excited, okay? Doctrine. It's, It's this idea that doctrine is meant to heal. It's meant to restore it's not meant, though it does, it's not intended to divide. Though it intrinsically will. Jesus will cause division just by his very nature. Doesn't mean he did anything wrong. All he did was speak the truth and that divides people because we don't like it. So today's going to be heavily doctrinal. We're going to take a look at a, a doctrinal understanding of this faith. The other thing, as it says, it says, keep yourselves in the love of God. We need to understand that this is the encapsulation of the whole thing. Last week is intense, okay? But you need to know that all of that is born out of love. Rejecting, receiving, redeeming, being aware of things that are an offense to the faith, being aware of people that are offending the faith and are in offense to God and contending against God, all of that is to be done in love. And whenever I come across love, you have to stop because America gets it wrong. You have to, every time in the Bible, you have to stop. And I want to encourage you to have a a more biblical understanding of the definition of love. And we know you take a look at ancient languages and they broke it up into types of love. We've we've heard that, right? And we know that it doesn't mean the same thing. I love love pizza and I love my wife. That doesn't mean the same thing or it shouldn't, okay? (laughs) Weirdos, right? All right? And so it shouldn't and we know it doesn't. But do we have a really good definition? And you guys know me. I'm a, I'm a fan of concise definitions. And, I, and I'm willing to, to submit to a better definition if God gives me one or gives you one to give to me. But to be honest, the best definition in my prayer and in my study that I've ever received from God, so I don't think it's wrong, okay, is that love is wanting for others 
what God wants for them. That's actually the epitome of love. You ever notice that? And so people say, well, because one of the false gospels is that, look, Jesus loves me for who I am. We love that. Jesus loves me just the way I am. Jesus loves me for the way I am. No, Jesus loves you because of who he is, despite who you are. That's actually the gospel. Jesus loves me for who I am. No, he loves you for who he is, despite who you are. So Jesus doesn't love you just the way you are. He loves you despite the way you are. That's actually what serves his glory. See, it's not about you. He loves me because I'm epic. No, he doesn't. You're not. Right? He loves you because he's epic. Because he's amazing. It always comes back to him. And so... This idea of loving people is wanting for others what God wants for them. That puts you immediately in contention with culture. They drug a woman to Jesus at, in church. I don't know if she was outside in the back of the room, just wanted to hear Jesus. And they drag her to the front, the religious people. They say, look at her, she's sleeping with men. Look at her. And Jesus deals with the religious people and then he looks to her. And what does he say? In love, everything he did, he encapsulates love. He's the epitome. He says, neither do I condemn you, but it didn't stop there. Go and sin no more. It is an entirely loving act to tell people to stop sinning, to just knock it off. Because Jesus says that. He didn't say, look, I don't condemn you. Carry on. That's what the world would say. That's loving. Just accept her. Love her for who she is. He says, no, because I love you, I want more for you. I want what God wants for you. And that's the epitome of love. And that's going to put you immediately in contention. Say, I want you to know Jesus. I want you to turn and, and put to death your sin. And people are like, oh, that's not very loving. No, that's the epitome of love. I want you to have Jesus. I want you to be redeemed and reconciled to the one true creator God. I want that for you. We're not to be smug or jerks or religious bigots because of it, but at the core of all of this, at the core of contending for the faith, whether you're rejecting, receiving, redeeming, being where, keeping a watch on the church, is love because you want for others what God wants for them, and that's Jesus. And that's the thrust behind the whole thing. But we, we, we take a step back and it says, your most holy faith And holy means what, church? Set apart. Pharisee means separated one, yes? So holy means set apart. Pharisee means separated one, right? If you've read the Amazon reviews, it's not great for the Pharisee, right? Like they, they don't get a good review. If you've read the Bible, not much said in good at all about the Pharisees. And they're the ones that were separated from the world. Their faith separated them. In the most holy faith, you are set apart in that faith. You're set apart in it, but you're not separate. And so what we have to do is we have to have a proper biblical understanding of what that faith means. What is the most set-apart faith in all of human history, in all of Christendom? What does it mean to have a faith that is set apart? We're going to unpack five doctrinal issues. They're not just like my favorite, by the way, okay? I would have come up with a terrible list if this was up to me, all right? It's, it, we're going to come up with a five doctrinal stances that if you deny one of them, God says you're dead to me. Ooh, that's a list you want to hear, right? So there's some pens got up. People are like, what the? <laughs> right? 
No one looks pens anymore, but everyone still does that, you know? It's like, right? Right? Some of you want this list, do you not? It's in the Bible. You deny one or any of these. You are not in the most holy faith. You are not a Christian. I don't care what you say. I don't care what time you come to my door on a Saturday morning in your cute little outfit. You're not a Christian. You're not a Christian. And I, as I tell those, I can't let you leave this door. We're not going to agree on stuff, by the way. Um, I can't let you leave without knowing that you're not a Christian. Oh, that's intense. Yeah, I want for you what God wants for you, which is to know that you're not in the faith and you're welcome to it. Let's talk, right? The most holy faith. And what I'm not going to set up is that these are all the doctrines of the faith. I'm not setting that up. You're going to see a recurring theme with these. As I said, this is a list that the Bible declares that if you deny these, you are dead. You're dead. You are dead before God. You are dead, as the Bible says, in your sins. Sound like a good list? We want to learn this? These are called the essential doctrines. Again, the essential healing teachings of the Christian faith. These are what heal the brethren. These are what heal the church. And I would go so far, I'm going to label these the primary essentials. Primary essential doctrines. And there's lots of, quote, secondary, not to lessen them. There's tons of secondary doctrine all throughout the Bible. But the chances are, when you understand the five primary essentials, the ones that say without these you're dead, the rest are assumed, right? You have no problem with the secondary essentials once you've gotten the primary essentials, right? This is the list. So get your pens out. This is what the list looks like. These are the primary essentials of the Christian faith. When we're contending for the faith, you need to know when I say Christian, which is a title used twice in the Old Testament, as opposed to hundreds of times we're declared to be in Christ. This is something you're in, not just a title you carry. When they say you are in Christ, you are a Christian, at the very core of that is Jesus wrapped around a doctrinal understanding of these five propositions. Monotheism, there is but one God. But one God, we'll get to the Trinity, don't freak out. Somebody, the Trinity needs to be on there, right? Monotheism, there is but one God, we'll see. The deity of Jesus, that makes sense, right? Like there's people that just don't get, are you a Christian? Yeah, do you believe Jesus is God? I'm still struggling with that, okay. Um, We need to talk, right? The deity of Jesus, salvation by grace. This is grace, speaks of mercy in our text, which is not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting that which you do not deserve. Difference. Difference. The resurrection of Jesus and the gospel, which we'll unpack. That'll be another five-point list, okay? Because I love lists in PowerPoint, right? These are the five primary essential doctrines of the Christian faith. If you reject one, any, all of these, you are not in the most holy faith. You're not. I'm sorry, I'm gonna show you why. The Bible says you are then dead in your sins, You're dead in your sins. The first one is monotheism. Exodus 20, verses three through six. This is the Ten Commandments. Sorry, it's the only one that's this long. Sometimes God gets a little wordy. Okay, we don't apologize for it. All right, the other verses will be bigger. You shall have no other gods before me. True or false, the Bible speaks of many gods. Yeah, everyone, it does. It speaks of one capital G God and many lowercase g gods. You know what those gods are also called? Demons. Demons that accept worship as gods, but they're not the creator God. 
Okay, so someone says, is there one God? You're like, oh, monotheism. One God. Yes, no, or it depends. Technically, it depends. Are we talking about an uppercase G God? There's one. Lowercase G gods that are demons, that are accepting worship as gods? Yeah, there's many, and the Bible talks about that. But there's one creator God. This is the God to whom we're referring. It says, you shall have no other gods because they do exist. None of those gods, those demons, will come before me. None of those. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, capital G God, that's the one we get excited about, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. But showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me, and keep my commandments. God says, I will visit the iniquity to the time, at, at times to the generations of people that reject that there is but one God and none before me. There is but one God, monotheism. One God, three persons we understand, but one God. He says, that is me, and I will visit the iniquity of generations of those who refuse this doctrine. And to those that accept it will be shown mercy. You want mercy? Because here's the thing. We're all, we all have the same plea before God, that we're sinners before a holy God. Everyone. If it were not for Jesus, you would be in the cell with the atheist in hell. You're like, well, I was better than you on earth. And he's like, where'd that get you? That's how it goes. You're not better than the atheist. You're not better than the agnostic. You have the exact same fate apart from Jesus. Exact same fate. Get off your horse. Relax. Love on them. Want for them what God wants for them, which is an understanding that there is but one God. It's not us, thank goodness. It's not demons. It's not angels. It's not prophets. It's not religion. It's not institutions or business. But one God, none will come before me. Monotheism. But showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me. And keep my commandments. There's but one God. Isaiah 43.10 says, you are my witnesses. Listen, church. You are my witnesses. Says the Lord. He didn't say like, you can be my witness. He says you are. The only question is whether or not you're a good one. Right? Gentlemen, you're the head of the marriage, right? Doesn't say you can be. It means you are. The only question is whether or not you're a good one. You are, church, you are the witnesses of the one true living God. Question is, what are you doing with that responsibility? Doesn't say you can be. It says you are, says the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. He's the one that gets a capital H. God's the one that gets the capital G, the capital H. Before me, there was no uppercase G God formed, nor shall there be after me. There's but one uppercase G God. There's one he, there's one him, there's one you. Not you. I'm talking to him, right? There's but one. Monotheism. Isaiah 44, 6 says, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no uppercase G God. There are other gods, but there is but one God. Isaiah 44, 8. Do not fear nor be afraid. Have I not told you from the last time and declared it? You are my witnesses. Again, not you can be, if you're up to it. You are. 
Is there a God besides me? Indeed, there is no other rock, capital R. I know not one. And see, Mormons will swoop in and say, look, we're Christian. You believe in one God. Well, we believe in many gods, but only one is worshiped. You've rejected monotheism. No, you're not Christian. And I love you way too much to let you leave this encounter without knowing that. And so you can defend against that claim. Right off the bat, first one, I'm sorry. Can I tell you about who Jesus really is? Can I tell you that there's but one God and none before him? None. And no, you don't get to be a God on your own planet, okay? What are you, 12? Okay, right? You're not gonna get your own planet, okay? Number two, deity of Jesus. Makes sense. This is Jesus speaking. Best Bible preacher in the history of all mankind. John 8, 24, he says, Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins. You will be dead before God. For if you do not believe that I am he. All faiths are basically the same. No one said that but Jesus. Muhammad never said that. Only Jesus. Buddha never said that. Krishna, Joseph Smith, no one said that but Jesus. I am he. No, they didn't all basically teach the same thing. And Jesus, and then he repeats, right? Because sometimes we need repetition. Right, you notice that? God repeats himself, yeah. That's not because he's not good at what he says, by the way. So you're not good at listening. You will die in your sins. Apart from accepting this as part of the most holy faith, you reject the deity of Jesus, you will be dead before a holy God. You will stand before a holy God and say, look, Jesus wasn't God. His sacrifice wasn't sufficient. I'm not even sure if he rose from the dead or whatnot. So let's be, ju- let's be based, just uh, judged on me. Let's, let's be ju- and then God just rolls out a book with everything you've ever thought or said or done in your life. And you're like, shoot. How long was the last guys that you talked to? You know this right off the gate. You, parents have seen this. Like three seconds into parenthood, right? You're like, oh my gosh, my you are a selfish little bugger, aren't you, right? Like, my, you care nothing for the mother right now. You are a selfish, whiny little brat from the get-go, right? We love kids, we're blessing, right? But they're sinful right out the gate. Just right out the gate, they're sinful. Just selfish, self-absorbed, me, right? I love my little boys, right? Selfish little sinners, though, right? They look up at me and they're like, you were too, right? Right off the gate, there's nothing we can stand before a holy God and lay out. I would say, look, I'm good enough for heaven. I'm adequate for heaven, right? Pastor Dave Johnson says it all the time. God lets one sin into heaven, what does he have? Earth part two. Earth part two. There'll be none of that. Thank goodness we're not judged on our own account, but we're judged on the account of Jesus Christ. And so you deny the deity of Jesus. He says, you will die. Jesus says, I won't be able to do anything for you. I won't do anything for you at that point. It's a gift. All you have to do is receive it. There's nothing you have to do for it. But you reject this, you will be dead in your sins. You see how intense this is? These these are the, the primary essentials of this most holy faith that sets us apart in this world. And so in this, so it says 1 John 4, 2 through 3, it says, this is how you can recognize the spirit of God. You want to know how to see it? You want to know how to see the spirit of God at work? Right? I want to see a miracle. 
How do you see a miracle? How do you see God stirring among the people? This is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh and is God. Anyone need more description than that? Well, but are there nuances to that? Nope, there's not. Everything that points you to Jesus is from God. The whole Bible points you to Jesus. You're reading through the Bible and you're struggling with it, right? Tap into the Holy Spirit who wrote it. He's gonna show you how it's all about Jesus. That's how you know you're interpreting the Bible correctly. Like, man, I was reading through the Old Testament and I just couldn't couldn't help it. Like, Jesus was on my heart the whole time. Praise God, that's a good day. That's a good day. Or I'm reading through the law and I'm getting burdensome and how am I gonna, how do I reconcile the Old Testament? That's not the Holy Spirit. I'm just, I'm looking at some other leaders and, and if you're not being pointed to Jesus, that's not the Spirit of God. I'll tell you what that is the Spirit of. I'll just have God explain it to you. He says this, this uh, but every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. Okay, so where does it come from? This is the spirit of the Antichrist. Everything that steers you away from Jesus is the spirit of the Antichrist. And some of you are thinking, well, that's the whole revelation thing that hasn't happened yet. I'm gonna finish the verse. It says, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. Everything that distorts the gospel and veers you away from having the end of every Bible study, the end of every prayer event, the end of every church service, the end of every sermon, not culminate in Jesus is of the Antichrist. It's of the Antichrist. It always leads to Jesus. Every single time. And we see that Jesus is the proper object of faith. If I came to you and I said, look, I've just got this super heart. I've got this immense faith. I want to help the poor. I want to be a good husband. I want to be good at my job. I've got so much faith. I'm so blessed to have this faith. What's the question you should ask me? In what? In whom? I learned that from Gandhi. Uh Uh-oh. I learned that from a professor. Right? Even worse. Right? Right? And so you can have all this immense faith, and I love professors, right? I give them a hard time because they deserve it, right? And so, and, and, and you've got this immense faith, but I'm telling you, it's vapid if it's not placed in the right person. You're gonna stand before God and put your faith in the teachings of Muhammad? Buddha? Okay, your professor? A pastor? Me? Rob? Brett? Tony? Really? No. It's not enough to have faith. It has to be faith in Christ or else you're dead in your sins, as he himself says. And of course, in this is the doctrine of monotheism. That's Isaiah 43, 44, 45, 46, 47, 40. It just, it goes on. I love Isaiah, by the way. I've seen the actual scroll of Isaiah in in Israel. They've got a, a fake one on display right now because they want to protect it, but I've seen the actual one. I think it's part of God's humor that he kept that one around, right? It's like, you know what? I'm going to keep Isaiah. I'm going to put that in a little scroll and put it in a cave somewhere, right? And he's just going even, even to, Jew, our Jewish brothers, they struggle to teach through Isaiah, right? Why? Jesus is all over that thing like crazy. It's like the fifth gospel, right? You can't deny it. So Jesus is like, yeah, I'm going to keep that one around, right? I'm going to let them see that one. Roll it out in its entirety. It's all over it. And so you see monotheism all throughout Isaiah. In the Trinity, this, so this doctrine of the deity of Jesus, this is where the Trinity comes in. In Matthew 28, 18 through 19, it says, And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Nowhere in the Bible does it say God is Trinity. Okay? 
But it speaks of the deity of God the Father, the deity of God the Holy Spirit, the deity of Jesus. And so we just put a label on it, it's okay. Call it the Trinity. In the beginning, God, singular plurality, Elohim, unified diversity. That's where university comes from, by the way. Oh, we've gotten off track, right? Unified diversity, singular plurality, Elohim. Im is always in the plural. God, three persons, one God. Monotheism. We haven't violated the first primary essential. And the hypostatic union. This is that God could that God could be fully God, come into the earth, and be fully man at the same time. And this is amazing because. In order to be an actual propitiation, in order to be an actual payment for the sins of the world, it must be God. You know that? Like, it can't be us. It couldn't be any one of us. It would have to be pure blood. Jesus had an adopted father on earth. His bloodline ran from heaven itself. Born of a virgin. And so when he was nailed to a cross... That was pure blood. That was God's lineage. That was God's son on the cross. That's why it could atone in accordance with the Old Testament. It says blood must be shed for the remission of sins. That's how atonement happens. And as fully man, and I don't really know how that works, right? Like 100%, 100%. Marriage is a picture of this. Marriage isn't 50-50, Okay, young people, unmarried, currently married, ruin your marriage, call it a 50-50 agreement, right? Guess what happens? You don't agree on 50%. Well, I'm gonna come to 49 and then you gotta you got meet me over here and we're gonna meet in the halfway, no, 100-100. You're both 100% in. God, Jesus in the incarnation, both 100% man, 100% God. As God, he could serve as the atoning sacrifice for your sins. He could. He could wash all sins of all time, as man, he can be mediator between you and God the Father. Why is that? Because he gets it. Jesus gets it. Though he never sinned, he was tempted in every way. Oh, pastor, you just don't understand. I might not, but Jesus does. Oh, you've never been in this? No, I haven't, but Jesus has. There's a good chance I have too, but Jesus was tempted in all ways but without sin. And so as he sits on the throne today, mediating for us and God the Father, he knows. See, the God of Gnosticism doesn't know. He doesn't know what it's like to be a physical being. He doesn't know what it's like to deal with temptation and see the carnage of sin and the broken nature of everything. Jesus knows. Without sin, he knows and he experienced it. And so as God, he could atone for our sin and as man, he could be our mediator. As it says in 1 Timothy 2.5, it says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. There's a band called Ghost Ship, Christian band called Ghost Ship. You can look it up, put it in your notes. They, write, they kick off their whole last album called The Good King. They kick it off with a song called Mediator, right out of 1 Timothy. There's but one mediator. Jesus understands. The Father wasn't incarnate. Jesus was. And so Jesus says, look, I know, what he's, I know what they're going through. I know this is a tough time. I was there. I know what sexual temptation was like. He knows that. He knows the temptation to drink a little too much, though he never did. But he knows that temptation. And so as God, he could atone. And as fully man, he can mediate. And that's known as the hypostatic union. Number three, salvation by grace. 
This is the third primary essential. You have become estranged from Christ. That's not a good thing. You who attempt to be justified by law, good deeds, religiosity, church attendance. You have fallen from grace. If you bring works to the table, if you come bringing religiosity and and good attendance and some Bible studies to the throne room of heaven before a holy judge and say, I did a pretty good job, you will have, from at that point, have been, you will have fallen from grace. Grace is getting that which you do not deserve. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, it is what? By grace you've been saved through faith, not of works. It's a gift of God, lest any man should boast. You can't even get all high and mighty on yourself that you've got faith. He just said it was a gift. Don't you love that? Uh, At least I mustered up the faith. Okay, God's grace, but my faith that he gave you, right? Look at this. Look what I got. You, You just got it. You were just, and I pray for that. I pray before I preach. I prayed it this morning with the staff out in front of the church. Just God, just keep handing out that present. Just keep giving it to people. Like they show up, they don't even know. Like I'm just gonna come check out this church. And all of a sudden you're given this gift of faith and you see Jesus differently. And you submit to him and you wanna follow his commandments because it's a gift. It just happens to you. We don't muster up enough faith to come right before God and Jesus. He gives us a faith that we can come before him on the account of Jesus. And so it's salvation by grace. Galatians 2.21 says, I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. If you bring works to the table, you bring works and religiosity and church attendance and, and, and some service to the church out of vain conceit, you bring that to the table. What you are saying is that the cross was not sufficient. Oh, does this mean we don't have to do anything? No, it means that if you're saved, you'll want to. You'll be excited about that. I just don't have a heart to serve the church. That ain't a church issue. That's a heart issue. That's a heart issue. You'll want to. You'll want to serve the church because Jesus first and foremost and ultimately served the church. You want to follow. I want to be like Jesus. Then serve the church. Well, I don't want to be like him in that way. Uh Uh-oh, right? You bring works to the table, God says, look, it was by my grace through the faith that I gave you that you're saved. The Bible says those are but filthy rags. Your work's but filthy rags. You reject that you've been saved by grace. Jesus says, the Bible says, God Almighty says, then you've fallen from grace. And that has eternal consequences. That's why it's an essential doctrine of this holy faith. Number four, the resurrection of Jesus. First Corinthians fifteen seventeen says, and if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. You're still in your sins if you reject this. You're dead. You're dead. That's why this is a primary essential of the Christian faith. Because a rejection of the resurrection of Jesus, Muslims do it, Jehovah's Witnesses do it, means that they are still in their sins. That's not a good place to be. 
It's not a good place to be. You're not washed by the work of Jesus. It is a works-based faith. They're just not your works. They're Jesus's works and they're done. It's finished. What are you trying to add? Stop. And the resurrection, because if you deny the resurrection, you deny that God overcame the grave. And guess what that means? That's still destiny. That means that's where we're headed. If it hasn't been overcome, if that pit hasn't had a bridge put across it, we're all headed to the pit. We're all going down. You deny the resurrection of Jesus, you are still in your sins. And so the Jehovah's Witnesses come to your door. They stop coming to mine, unfortunately. And they come to your door. I gotta, I don't know. We'll figure that out. I'm just like rally them up, right? Cul-de-sac, corner them, right? And so... And I, and I just tell him, I said, look, I can't let you leave my doorstep without knowing this. You're going to walk to the next door. Last time they came with like a 12-year-old kid. And they had like a four-year-old in the back in a suit, like standing there. I'm like, can I, no, right? Bro, <laughs> right? Like, you're still in your sin. Before a holy God, you're still in your sin. When Jesus died, yeah, he crucified. We get all that. Did he resurrect? No. Then the grave is still there. And it's all encompassing at that point. This is the faith we contend for. That Jesus, yeah, he rose from the dead. He defeated death. That's why he's called the firstborn of the dead. He's the first one to actually resurrect. He revived people, did he not? Lazarus, other people. But they died again, right? They weren't like risen once and for all. Jesus was. He was resurrected. Other people were revived. Jesus was resurrected. As we will be resurrected. We're gonna get a body like his. It's gonna be epic. We're gonna be shredded, right? We're gonna be, right? We're gonna be, Six packs, right? It's going to be amazing. I fully believe it, right? Pecs bigger than your belly, the whole thing, right? Like, <laughs> resurrected. We're going to get that body. That's how we know what it's going to look like because we saw Jesus, in Scripture, it tells of Jesus resurrected. We get the same thing. Isn't that epic? That's amazing. We get to serve in his kingdom. So get used to service, by the way, right? Okay, so same with worship. It's like he wants me to help at church or something, Right? Number five, the gospel. Number five, the gospel. By the way, I never served at church. I did it only selfishly. I played in the band at my uh, dad's church because why? Because everyone wants to be in the band for crying out loud, right? The girls are looking at you and you're like playing bass, you know? And so I did that. I, was, I never served the church though until I came here, until I really got saved, until I really got gripped by the gospel. Now it's like nothing. Let's do this. Let's serve. Let's go. It's game time, right? Because the worst thing you could possibly do is make church like a football huddle. Right? You come out, you get all excited. Good doctrine. This is all doctrinal, right? In Colossians, Paul lays out this understanding that good doctrine comes in through your head, creates an emotional response once it's understood, creates an emotional response in your heart, and that emotional response works itself out in your hands. Goes through your head, your heart, and your hands. That's good doctrine. Okay? Good doctrine goes in through your head, you understand it, goes through your heart, it evokes this emotional response, and it just works itself out in your hands. A lot of people get that wrong. They show up with their hands ready to go. I want to work. They don't understand why they're doing it, and they don't really care. Some people get it and they get a good response. They get all excited and then they go home. Right? You've seen that. Imagine that. Imagine a Sunday football game. The whole team runs out there. You got this epic quarterback, Peyton Manning, just blasting the records like crazy. What are we going to do? We're going to run this, this, this. We're going to get this going. Yes! And then they run back to the bench. What, 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 are, you guys, Peyton's, what are you guys doing? We got all excited. We know what you're going to do. It's going to be epic. We're going to hang out over here. We're not going to do anything. We're going to be so excited our microphone thing's going to fall off, right? 
for the second service in a row. The exact same point. And so church just becomes a football huddle. Everyone comes here, learns a little bit, gets all excited and goes home and does nothing. Becomes just a vapid exercise in huddling together with other Christians. That's not contending for the faith. That's not. Comes in through your head, goes to your heart, works itself out in his hands, right? The gospel, number five. That's a big term, so we'll break this down. It says, as we have said before, because he had just said this in the verse before, he repeated it, God does that, right? Not because he's redundant, but because we don't get it, right? So you can read verse eight, it says pretty much the same thing, talks about angels, even if angels preach something wrong, right? As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. Accursed is not a good thing. You're dead. What do we mean by this gospel? I'll show you in another slide because I love slides. And apparently it's a good day for a list of fives. This is the gospel in five parts. See, a lot of times you show up to church, not here, but you get, you get two parts. You have what I call the you suck and Jesus fixed it gospel. You show up to church, hey, how are you? You guys were terrible this week. Terrible. You know what? You're going to be terrible next week. Good thing Jesus fixed it. Go home. You're like, oh, that's not, that's not the whole gospel. That's not the whole gospel. It doesn't explain why you're terrible. Because you are, by the way, right? So am I. That's part of it. It starts in creation. Created in God's image. In the beginning, God created. We know from Colossians 1.16, who does the creating? Jesus, right? All things were created through him and for him. So Jesus shows up, is the mode by which all things were created. Epic. And then he creates everything and he creates us in his image, different than lower creation, different than animals, different from plants, different from mountains. Okay? He says, look, I'm God, you're man, and there's lower creation. You got to understand that. You're not God, but you're not an animal either. Okay? Gentlemen especially, you're told one of two things. You're either going to be a God or you're just going to be an animal. Right? We're right in the middle, right where we should be in that good, sweet tension. And so in the creation, we're created in his image. This answers questions, why do non-Christians do good things? Because in their DNA, they're stamped with the image of God. They may reject him. Why do, Christians, why do non-Christians do good, do good things? Because the gospel starts in the creation account where they're stamped with the image of God. You can't get away from that. You can't like remove it. I'm an atheist. Doesn't matter. Still in the image of God. Okay, then why do Christians do bad things? Funny you ask, chapter two. Right? People in the garden talking to God and they still got it wrong. Okay? The fall. This is where we commit cosmic treason. Every day we do it. Don't look at Adam and Eve and say, geniuses, they didn't get it. We don't get it. We got it wrong this morning, did we not? You got aggravated on the freeway. Right? You got mad when your alarm went off. Maybe not this service. Eight o'clock, definitely. Right? (laughs) The fall. This is why Christians do bad things. Because we're all equally fallen. Good thing it doesn't start there or stop there. Right? Redemption on the cross. So the fall of Genesis 3.6, redemption, Romans 5.8. You can unpack redemption. I mean, I'm not trying to simplify it. That's one verse, okay? That God from heaven swooped into human history on a cosmic rescue mission to reconcile as only he could a broken and fallen people to God. So look, Adam and Eve were the only ones that knew what it's like to be perfect. We'll know that again in the future, right? They knew perfection and they lost it for us, okay? They lost it for us 
in the garden, Jesus says, only I can fix this mess. And he swoops into human history and he allows himself to be murdered and humiliated on the cross. And we focus on that and we preach Christ crucified, but that's not where the gospel ends. It's not, thank goodness, right? You're like, what are we doing here? It's finished, let's go. Reconciliation, Colossians 1, 21 through 23. This is the chapter we're in right now. Did you know that? The cross happened thousands of years ago. He's not on the cross anymore, amen? Amen. He's not there. That's what I love about the Protestant Reformation. They just took Jesus off the cross because he wasn't still hanging there, right? Revelation hasn't happened yet. What chapter are we in right now? Reconciliation, where Jesus is currently and actively reconciling all things to himself. Ooh, that's intense. That's epic. I love, I love this chapter. So I, wish I, was, I wish I was there for Jesus. I wish revelation would happen. Be excited about the phase we're in. He's giving people time. And you'll notice you never got excited about revelation until you got saved, right? You wanted all the time in the world until you got saved. Then you got saved. You're like, you know what, Jesus? Just come down. Let's get rid of this. Let's go. All of a sudden, you don't want time for other people. All of a sudden, you don't want what God wants for them. You just want Jesus to come back now to, sell, to solve your selfish purposes. Loving people is wanting for them what God wants for them. And he sees fit right now for this entire redemptive story of the gospel to give people time to come to him, to be reconciled to him. Before the consummation, the whole thing's leading up to Jesus, by the way. Started with Jesus, makes sense that it ends with him too. And so Revelation, I have no verse for that. Just read the whole book tonight, right? Just read the whole book tonight. Just go for that. That's the consummation of all things. We're studying through it. The, the uh, young adult ministry, the men's study is going through it. Um, the women had already done it. They sent the precedent. I heard that the junior hires might be doing it. It's like the year of Revelation at this church. It's epic. It's just Jesus is up all excited in heaven, sharpening his sword. He, can't, he loves it, right? And so this is the gospel. This is the doctrinal understanding of this holy faith that sets us apart that we can articulate the primary essential doctrines that without an understanding of those, we're dead. We're dead. And when it comes to the gospel, it's understanding the gospel of Jesus Christ. On my ordination certificate at the bottom, it says, a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you know this full, all-encompassing, by the way, uh, God wrote a book on this whole thing, right? (laughs) Like, that'd be an epic story to read, right? You can read the whole thing, Genesis 1 all the way to Revelation. That's the entirety of the gospel. It's all right here. And I just lost my place in Jude, right? Revelation, here we go. And so this is the gospel. And it says in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4, it says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which you are also saved, if you hold fast that word which I preach to you. If you hold fast to what we've discussed today, salvation awaits by the grace of God. You hold fast, you contend for this in a world that's dying and needs to hear it. Unless you believed in vain, for I, it doesn't just let you off the hook. Okay, I get it, I saw the list, I'm gonna write it in my Bible and now I'm saved. Mm-mm. Unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you. Again, faith, you just gotta ask for faith. Just pray for that. I, I wanna get as excited. Don't you come to church sometimes? I did this with Pastor Rob. I come to church and I sit there and be like, dang it, I wish I was excited as him. I wish I just got all uppity. And at some point, God's like, 
Really? Do you actually want that? Here you go. And this is what happens, right? This is what happens when God shows up and then just gives it to you. So be, be careful. I mean, still ask for it, but be ready, right? Take your seatbelt off. It's going to be a wild ride, right? And so you just simply have to ask for this. This is something you muster up. I mean, I wish I could just muster up excitement. You're going to go try to get jacked up on coffee before church. See if you can keep up, keep up with Mark, right? right? No, ask for it. He'll give it to you, right? It says, for I delivered to you first and all that which I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. Let's continue. It says in verse 21, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for our mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ until eternal life. And on some have compassion, making a distinction, but others save with fear. And it says, look, this is that compassion that comes when you, when you want for others what God wants for them. And again, in the context of Jude, that people are coming in and they're beginning to distort what it means to be a Christian. They're beginning to distort what the gospel means and they're trying to simplify it and, and they're trying to reject certain portions but keep a few. And says, so, look, you need to have compassion on those that are being affected by this false teaching, by the false gospel, the anti-gospel, the assumed gospel, the non-gospel. You need to have compassion. And with some, you just need to have this, you need to have this understanding by the grace of the Holy Spirit that you've got to approach some in fear. Because why? Because you now understand that, that apart from a contention, and you've got, to, you've got to let God move in you and work through you to contend for this faith. Because, because to be honest, there, there's a healthy amount of fear when you understand that people are going to go to hell without an understanding of some of this. Ultimately, God's the one that regenerates hearts, but we're in this reconciliation process where he's using you as an agent of that. That's your role. That's the call of the Christian church today, to be an active agent in God's redemptive framework and to contend for the faith among a culture that wants to pick it apart and make it vague and say, well, that all sort of means the same thing and the gospel is really just that you're terrible and, and Jesus died and that's it. And, and they, they may have good intention, but you've got to approach that with fear because we just studied Revelation 6 last night and, and one of the horsemen comes down. You know what's following him? His name is death and hell is following him. Just like the concept of hell is behind him. It's like, hi, I'm death and these are my friends. And death is coming. Every day we get closer to the Jesus of Revelation. Every day. And so we contend earnestly for this faith with clarity of the distinct doctrines that make a Christian church a Christian church and not a cult. Praise God. And we contend for this gospel and we declare it clearly, openly. We see it everywhere and we're excited about it by the grace of God. See, Jude got excited at the end. He didn't like get all hampered down. He says, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Verse 24, and then he just goes into worship. That same band I referenced earlier, Ghost Ship, they have a song on the same album called Jude Doxology, right out of here. Bam, right? Best lyrics ever written? Bible. Let's just use that, right? And so Jude Doxology comes, he just ends with worship. All of this, when you understand contending for the gospel, contending for the faith, rejecting, receiving, redeeming, you're being aware of people coming in, distorting the gospel, you're contending, you're pushing back the gates of hell, it's doing it all in love, you're understanding doctrine, you're understanding the gospel, all of it culminates in worshiping Jesus. That's how it culminates. Like you get excited about worship. I have a worship problem. I don't like the music. I don't, you know, you have a heart problem. 
When you realize that Jesus came into human history to save you because your fate is the same as the atheist. You guys are going to share a cell in hell apart from Jesus. You can't help but serve the church. You can't help but contend for the faith. And you can't help but worship the one that saved you. And Jude's doxology sounds like this. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless, before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to God our Savior. Oh, I can hear the song. To God our Savior, Jesus. Oh, you guys gotta get the album. He says, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. We do not contend for the gospel because it needs to be won. We contend for the gospel because it already has been won. We do not fight for victory. We fight in victory. Jesus finishes it all. It's always about him. It always has been. We contend for the faith with our eyes set on Jesus. And now as we go into a time of worship, there's going to be prayer team in the back. If you guys want to go back and pray, we come into a time of doxology. We come in time of worship and we simply say, Jesus, I see you. I want to know you. I'm so excited about what you've done and I can't help but worship you. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for this time. I pray passionately for that perspective. That we would see as your word declares that we are a part of the most holy faith. A faith that sets us apart from a broken and dying world. It doesn't separate us from it. There's contention to be had for the world's sake. For your name's sake. But we contend for this faith because it is of you. It was a gift that you gave to us and it's precious and it's valuable. And so we defend it and we contend for it. Openly, declaratively, unabashedly that we have faith in Jesus Christ and the gospel. So we thank you for what you've done. We thank you for what you're doing here right now. We thank you for what you're gonna do. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.